This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, no place like home. When Camille Dungy was little, her family lived in Irvine, California, on a street called Bluff View. She had the contours of that bluff memorized in her feet, knew the plants that grew around there by name, desert oak, eucalyptus, prickly pear, and had her favorite caves with sand-lined walls she could scratch words in. But before she entered high school, a construction crew came in and built palacios for the town's wealthy set. They leveled the hilltop, cut down the oaks, pulled the sage, and asphalted the hills. When I write about nature, she says in one of her essays, I write about loss. These days, it's hard to keep wrapping our heads around the loss. When I called her up on August 27th, her home state of California had been burning for over a week. And two days earlier, the police had shot yet another black man in the back, this time Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. But in her essays and poems, Camille Dungy does more than document the loss. She makes a point of celebrating what we still have and need to keep fighting for. This is probably why she was asked to speak at this year's virtual Democratic National Convention, which she called into from her current home of Fort Collins, Colorado, a week before we talked. How did it go? How did you feel? Um, I felt good about it. What were the reactions that you got? Because it's like a whole Zoom thing and it's, you know, you probably don't get reactions in real time as you would when you're standing in front of a crowd. Correct. I did have a bit of a real time reaction because the chairwoman slash moderator choked up mm-hmm. and I had to kind of pause for a second as she muted herself and then composed herself. But um, so that was an immediate um, response that I guess I said yeah something here's just a short snippet of what she said there are so many of us we are different in so many ways but this is our moment to come together not to put our differences aside but to engage the creative potential each of us can offer we cannot have environmental justice without social justice We cannot address the economic crisis without addressing the climate crisis. We cannot fully understand our everyday experiences without the valuable insights that literature and the arts provide. And we cannot support the people of the United States, all the different people of the United States, without also supporting the greater than human world. So how was it to immediately get the reaction from someone who was genuinely choked up? You know, I mean, it's all of this is so urgent. Um, yeah. It's so urgent and so dire. And yet the language that we use to talk about it sometimes is convoluted and not direct. And so I think that that's one of the things that poetry can do is kind of cut through Do you have a sentence or a thought that you repeat to yourself when you're writing to snap yourself to attention and say what you really mean? Hmm. I don't know if I have a kind of mantra 
for that, except for, I think for me, part of the deal as a writer is that it's just important for me that language be grounded in reality. Like Elizabeth Bishop has that great quote, a metaphor needs to touch in at least three places and two of them should be in the real world. (laughs) And it doesn't work if your language is just disconnected from the body and disconnected from the planet and disconnected from the senses. And so that's what I am always trying to do. Mm -hmm. Like, let's come back. Like, do I have at least four of the five senses in this poem? Is there a real place? Is there, is there real color here? Am I actually saying what I mean and not simply suggesting what I mean? And so I think in drafting and in revision, I'm always asking myself those questions. And then that's what allows me to maybe bring things back. Right. Well, let's start them by grounding you in your reality. Um, I wanted to know, what has your world uh, been like in a very sort of concrete way over the past few months? I have a lovely home and a wonderful garden. And so that is nice. Uh, mm-hmm. I looked out the window yesterday and saw yellow tinging the linden trees leaves and I freaked out (laughs) yeah because I am not prepared for winter it was a really long cold winter last year I think with climate change we're expecting more snow more intensely here in Colorado than we often get Mm. and I don't I just I kind of can't <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, imagine being really stuck inside the house in that way. Yeah. Uh, we did order some of those outdoor heaters that you see in restaurants <laughs> oh, so yeah, that yeah, we yeah. can stretch our shoulder season a little bit longer and have right. meet people in our backyard for longer mm-hmm. than we might. So the home itself is fine. Um, my parents live around the corner and we are able to see them, but it's not without stress because I think my daughter and I in particular are in the world a little bit more Mm. than we would feel comfortable exposing them to. And so every time we're with them, we're masked, which makes eating harder and, you know, hugging is scary. And, and so that's so hard, right? Like this sense of constant danger, either to you or to those you love. Um, I, I remembered after the election back Mm -hmm. in 2016 that I'd had a conversation with a friend who was just irate and she said um, what she thought. And I said something like, you know, well, welcome to the movement. Welcome to this work that we're doing. And she quite justifiably said, I'm 15 years older than you are. I've been in this movement um, and struggle longer than you have. And I, you know, acknowledged that she was right. But then mm-hmm. a couple days ago, she wrote me and she's like, I don't know how you do this. Because now she was adding this other piece with um, what just happened in Kenosha. And yeah. like, that's what I had meant when I said, welcome to the struggle. Like, I understood that she has been fighting for a lot that I value in terms of the environment and women's rights and reproductive rights and things like that. But there's always this extra piece that has to do with 
being black in America that uh, it it takes even the most savvy and open um, minded people sometimes like this extra step to get to. And all of that is to say that I feel like now this terror that so many of us have about putting ourselves and the ones we love into jeopardy feels so familiar <laughs> to me, right. right? Like it doesn't feel different than my concern that I have about my black father when he's in his car, right? Like it's just another reason to be worried, but the worry is the same. Right. And when this happened once again in Kenosha, as you said, um, I just wanted to know like what the conversation is in your household, especially with Callie there. Um, is she, is it very organic? It just comes up and she's a part of that. Or do you try and talk about it when she's maybe in bed or do you filter your language around it or your anger in any way? Uh, or is it just like, you know, look girl, this is the world that you're born into. So you better know about it. I, I think all the above. I don't know that I have directly told her about Kenosha. Like that's just, Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, her father teaches <laughs> black studies yeah. and African-American history. And I mean, like it's, it's around, mm -hmm. um, what the kind of ambient anxiety is doing to empathetic, open, mm -hmm. porous young people. I just, I, I don't even know. Um, some of it's good because it means that the creativity, um, for survival and resilience sets in firmer and earlier than it might. But on the other hand, like she is a child and why can't yeah. she just experience being a child? And then, mm -hmm. you know, the climate disaster, like I know that like her future isn't going to look like my future and it certainly isn't going to look like her grandparents' future. And so it is important to prepare her none of this to me is disconnected like the mm -hmm. the covid crisis and the climate crisis and the mm -hmm. social and racial justice and economic justice questions they are all tied up entirely together it is impossible to separate these tethers but i'm thinking about this question that you're asking about how i talked to my daughter years mm -hmm. ago she was maybe four years old and she was just standing at the sink running a the water because that's cool you know yeah. water's cool right. <laughs> yeah and it comes out of nowhere it comes out of nowhere <laughs> you know? and it like flows and you can put your hand under it and it was just she was just having fun but i'm from the american west and so i have this um knowledge of the scarcity of water and um mm. so i kind of entered the room and saw this and said you know when the water wars happen honey you're going to be sorry you just wasted water like that willy-nilly mm. and mm. it was just like an off statement but also true yep <laughs> <laughs> and I saw her making these faces in the mirror and I asked what are those faces you're making and she said these are my water wars faces um <laughs> which was very sweet and they were quite menacing and <laughs> yeah. um you know and so now you know she's mm. uh in fifth grade and She turns the water off when she's soaking her hair and she turns her, the water off when she's brushing her teeth. And so mm -hmm. she has ingested these ideas about water scarcity and the importance of saving water partially yeah. from my talking to her directly and partially from these kinds of joking offhand statements.
I know that your parents were uh, history buffs and that your sister actually uh, went on to become a historian. Do you remember if there was a moment when you first realized that history is not just something you read about in books, um, but that it intersects with life? I think part of my realization of that has grown over time. I'm not sure that I was a 15-year-old girl <laughs> with that real knowledge. I can tell you that when I went to college, when I was working on my honors thesis at Stanford about literature that was coming out of the late 60s and early 70s in the San Francisco Bay Area, where I was then studying and where my sister was born, so where my family had lived, that's the moment that I can remember when the collapse happened, where I realized that history is now. Um, so that was the moment, I think, where I really began to feel uh, the continuity. Mm -hmm. There's a poem where you describe a, a scene on a plane where a flight attendant has a sudden encounter with history, this kind of collapsing, as, as you just described. Um, and I was wondering if you can read that poem and talk about it a little bit. It's in uh, Trophic Cascade, um, yeah. page 50. Yeah. Frequently asked questions, number seven. Is it difficult to get away from it all once you've had a child? I am swaying in the galley, working to appease this infant who is not fussing, but will be fussing if I don't move. When a black steward enters the cramped space at the back of the plane, he stands by the food carts, prepping his service. Then he is holding his throat, the way we hold our throats when we think we are going to die. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. He is crying. My God, what they did to us. I am swaying, lest my brown baby girl make a nuisance of herself. And the steward is crying honest man tears. Seeing you holding your daughter like that, for the first time, I understand what they did to us. All those women sold away from their babies, he whispers. I am at a loss now. Perhaps I could fabricate an image to represent this agony, but the steward has walked into the galley of history. There is nothing figurative about us. Thank you. You're welcome. So, yeah, I mean, it's a true story. Um, Callie was four months old. So just a tiny, tiny baby. And we were flying from Washington, D.C. back to the Bay Area where we lived at the time. And um, that happened, right? Like, I'm not augmenting it. But what I can tell you is that I was trying to write the poem and I kept trying to create an image to close out the poem. And I had all kinds of like really weird visual images that I was trying to create to explain this till I finally realized that whole point was that this was the image yeah <laughs> the, the thing that the steward saw 
the idea of the word steward, the word galley, and its echoes with ships as opposed to in the plane, all of that was already in there in the language. And I didn't need to create some sort of flourish of imagery. And so that also is as it happened, right? That moment where I realized there's nothing figurative about us was my own realization in the drafting of the poem. Right. And the moment that the steward says, my God, what they did to us, but without explanation, mm -hmm. I wonder if you already knew what he meant. Hmm. I feel like I did. I feel like I did because he was so broken up. He was just so distraught that the us wasn't me anymore. It was something so much larger. So I do feel mm -hmm. like I, I understood that pretty immediately. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like when you had Callie that there were moments where history collapsed for you in a similar way? Oh, all the time. All the time. I ended up writing a, a book of essays mm -hmm. called Guidebook to Relative Strangers, which also has a number of accounts of experiences that we had while traveling together. And that was happening all the time, that, that her presence became a bridge for me between the past and the future, and also between me as this kind of individual and me as part of one or more collectives of people. Um, and so the porosity of time and experience magnified exponentially once she entered my life. Yeah, I mean, you, you indeed in that essay collection, I think it's really beautiful how you describe This is not so much about history, but how you said, you know, people that I'd always known as colleague, professor, all of a sudden was a parent who was like silly, uh, playing on the floor with his kids. And, and I think that does have to do with history, because then that means like, mm -hmm. oh, wait, I'm open to another aspect of that person's personal history. But then it also opened me up to social histories that I wasn't privy to, either because that window hadn't been opened to me before or because I hadn't bothered to look at it, right? I mean, like both of those things can be true that until you enter some particular experience space, you don't bother to look at that experience space, right? Um, so kind of going all the way back to the way that the vulnerability that COVID has created for so many of us, um, yeah. then all of a sudden, a lot of my, you know, well-minded white friends are like, oh, I get it now. But they never had had to experience that if I leave my house, I could die, right? Like it just wasn't an experience that they'd had before, mm -hmm. but I have my whole life. And so now all of a sudden like, oh, this is hard, right? <laughs> Happens because you've personally experienced it. I mean, humans have really great imaginations, but also they're super flawed and limited. But, you know, this is what is so interesting about your work, because, yes, in general, we're really bad at imagining sort of the everyday life of people who are different from us, whether that that's because they are parents and we are not or because they are black and we are not whatever. You know, it's very hard. But I feel like your work does so much to cut through that. I, I've read so many books about about becoming a parent 
just an existential experience, you know, that I'm locked out of because I don't have kids, but I, I'm still interested in. But I mean, people always say the same things, right? Like, oh, it changes your life. You know, you don't know love until you have a kid, you know, this and that. Okay, great. I will. Be- I want to believe you because that is awfully consistent, <laughs> but I still don't feel it. But with your work, you are successful in making that gap between those who know it because they have it and those who don't because they don't. You make that really small. And I wonder if you know how you do that. Hmm. Is it the particularity again? I mean, you just said, like, we say you don't Uh know love until you've experienced this, but like... I then go and try to really explain. I mean, I do have that whole section in that in one of those essays where I talk about why we want to eat babies' legs, right? <laughs> right? Like, so like we all know that we want to eat babies' legs, and I'm like, but really, why? And so I do like a neurological study about like, what that's about. So maybe that's it. Is that like in my writing, I really want to get as much detail in. I want to be able to let you experience these things alongside me. I feel like we are all so busy. We're also busy. We're also distracted. We all have so many things to do. And if you're going to give me the honor of sharing your life and your time with me, I want to give you something new. I want to give you something that really feeds you and enriches you and, and helps um, helps you to grow. And so I have to dig deep and give the, the truth. Yes. I, I think you're right with that precision. Um, and there was this one poem, still in a state of uncreation, mm. on uh, page eight. Yes. Where the lyric I, or you, if I can make it simple, is pregnant and uh, trying to come up with very precise uh, names for the being that she's pregnant with. And I was wondering if you remember when you wrote that poem, if you wrote it in one day, if you wrote it over months, uh, like sort of how did this poem come about? I often set projects for myself so that I can write regularly. I believe that coming to the page and creating a space in my routine gives better yields <laughs> than just waiting for inspiration mm-hmm. to strike. Um, so I was writing these weekly poems like this is where we are in like the week of the development of the fetus and most of them did not make it into this book because most of them were bad (laughs) (laughs) and the ones that did make it into the book ended up having their titles changed so that they're not in that you know week eight kind of um version and so this is one of those poems and this must have been like eight weeks or 12 weeks like a really early when oh wow you're in that space where you know you're pregnant maybe your doctor does but nobody else um yeah. and so it's really very personal and private um and potentially life-altering um the title still in a state of uncreation Mm-hmm. is actually uh, Adrian Rich line from her book of Women Born. Another project I like to set for myself sometimes are, you know, a syllabic count per lines or what kind of breath will I be creating in the line? And here it was like, how long can I sustain a kind of sonic resonance as kind of certain sound combinations how long can i keep those going without the package collapsing 
Right. Yeah, it creates such an, a, a beautiful arcs of tension because then the moment that it does break, that you do pass on through a new letter, you're like, oh, ooh. yeah. It's sort of like when the beat drops or something. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that is, that's the thing about creation, isn't it? It's like, you've got to, let's just like picture a, a snowball or a ball of clay or something. You've got to hold it and hold it and combine it and pack it in. But there is a breaking point. You can only make it but so big before it'll all collapse. Yeah. Still in a state of uncreation. Little eradicator, little leaser little loam collector, connoisseur of each vestigial part, little bundle of nerve, waste leaker, pump, little lead in, lean to, least known, lucky landing, being, being, born by me, little consequence, little ruckus causer, unborn, little insatiable, little irrevocable, little given, little feared, little living, little seen, little dangler, little delight, little growing, little life, little you. Thank you. Some of it too is just me like being a big geek, <laughs> like just thinking about like the, in those early times, the fetus or the embryo was really just like a heart pump, right? right. They like, spill all their waste out like and they like do really dangle there from the umbilical cord like there's so many of the things that are to me just like how can I describe this scientific reality in a delightful uh -huh. way yes and how do you feel about reading that now like the scientific things are still true or whatever but like the the words that are more about how she'll change your life how do you feel reading those now oh it's still all true <laughs> Little eradicator. Right, little eradicator. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I do. I think that this quarantine thing, like, if it was just, like, just me and my husband locked out, I'd be writing all the time. We'd be, like, watching Netflix. You know, like, I feel like my life would look totally different. But now I'm like, okay, how do I get this kid remote schooled? How do I keep her emotionally balanced? Like, so much of my energy is just absorbed with trying to make sure that she is managing this experience. And like my own experience of it is eradicated in a sense. And so, yeah, yeah no, I don't think that that ever goes away. And, and you know, my mother's worried about me, right? Like, yeah. so like, I'm a grown up, but she still worries about me, you know? <laughs> like, yes. So I think that there is this way that our lives shift. Um, yeah. Exactly. Again, in a way that you can't imagine if you haven't had it. And so I'm wondering, since when you wrote the poem, you hadn't had your daughter. Is there a word in there that isn't true now? Well, she doesn't leak waste anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Good. We've moved past that phase. Um, that's so, so that's probably pretty good. Um, right. Unborn is not true anymore. No. No, though I do. I feel like I still do bear her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I call her little loam collector there just in that idea of like matter coming together mm -hmm. in this body. But we were talking yesterday about how from when she was just little, she's always loved collecting rocks and, you know, piles, mm -hmm. you know, like so that's maintained itself in a way, but transformed itself also.
when you were growing up in Irvine, did you have someone there who taught you the words of plants? My father and I are very similar. <laughs> he is a scientist and precision is important. He was also he one of his you know one of his majors in college was botany. Oh, and wow. so like he doesn't even want to just call it by its common name. Like he would prefer to go <laughs> with the taxonomy. <laughs> name. Exactly. Because the common names are confusing, you know. What is a daisy? There's so many daisies, right? So <laughs> right, 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 right. You had to get the taxonomy exactly. right. Exactly. And so that mm -hmm. I think that was just the house in which I grew up. And so to me now when I talk to writers about this question, like it doesn't mean anything to me if you write in your poem that there's a tree because I don't know what that tree <laughs> right. looks like you have to describe the tree and and like naming it goes some distance towards describing it what do you think having that precise name when you walk around the landscape and you can name things what does that do for you what does it do for you if you enter a room with 50 people and you know none of their names <laughs> <laughs> you don't know where they're from. You don't know anything about them versus walking into a room where you know 15 of those people's names, right? For one thing, you're going to kind of gravitate towards those 15 people whose names you know and whose experiences you have some sense about. And then that gives you the comfort to go and meet some of the rest of the people in the room, right? That's how it feels. I don't know anything. If I don't know their names, if I don't know the stories of the flora and fauna there, I feel like I've entered a party and I I don't know anybody. <laughs> I love that. And so because you grew up for a big chunk of your childhood in Irvine, in California, um, what's it like to teach Callie about, you know, oh, this is that bird and this is uh, this uh, weed uh, in Colorado then, when a, that is not your native yeah, language? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it took a long time and I felt very unrooted and actually purposely practiced, like took some kind of survival classes to figure out what you can eat out there, Did, have done some research into indigenous food ways to see what the Arapaho and Cheyenne and Ute who lived in this area might have eaten here and might have done with the native plants. Um, and as we're recreating our yard and garden, I'm really trying to keep at the forefront, native and non-invasive localized plants, um, naturalized plants, I think is the word they use for it. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> so I've gotten, we're here seven years now, and I've gotten a whole lot better about being able to identify and describe things. Mm. She's now at an age where she can retain and hold that information. Luckily, you know, when she was four or five, it really didn't matter whether I knew that it was a cottonwood tree or Right. but like now <laughs> I can. And so it's been, it really, I feel like the poems I'm writing now, the work that I'm writing now will finally be Colorado based mm -hmm. writing. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it took seven years, but it's still the American West. And so I lived in the mm -hmm. East coast for 11 years and I never stopped writing about California, nor did I want to. Right. Yes. It wasn't like this like desire to really figure out the names of that landscape. It's still the American West and it's a landscape that I love. It's a sky that I am familiar with and that I understand. There's an aridity to the air that I'm familiar with and I understand. And so 
though I don't necessarily know this latitude <laughs> and I don't necessarily know like what happens in this pocket of the region, this that has taken me longer. There is a lot of crossover between the flora and fauna of the space and what I grew up with. Right. Tell me about the sky. Because there's something that I find, like, I have the same feeling. I understand the sky of Europe, where I'm from. I understand the sky of the East Coast. But when I'm on the West Coast, I get so confused because the sky is too big. It's so big! Which makes no sense because, of course, the sky is just as big everywhere. That's not right? true. It's not true. I don't think it is. Is it not? <laughs> But, okay, but explain that to me because I don't understand why the sky is different somewhere else. I mean, of course, the colors and stuff, you know, but how, how can it be bigger or smaller? Okay, well, so one thing happens. Again, it took me some research and thinking. I have spent time thinking about this question. One thing that happens is because it's arid here, because it's dry here, the air does not hold the same number of water molecules. Right. So it looks more open because the air isn't filled up with water that changes our view. So looking in a the same pool, a basin with water and without will change the perception of how big that basin is, correct? Yes. Okay, so that's right. one thing that happens with the sky. And therefore that bright blue and not too many clouds and the clouds themselves kind of are actually look like cotton balls <laughs> and, and tend to <laughs> be do. really discreet, right? In a way yes. that they're not kind of all stretched out on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. I feel claustrophobic on the East of Coast. Of course. There's also not, um, the horizon is different because we don't have mm -hmm. as many trees. It's not forested mm -hmm. in the same way. Your horizon is not broken up and blocked here. And so that also makes the sky look a lot bigger because you ha right. you, you really do have more of it in a line of sight. Uh-huh. There's a, a poem which is not in your book. It's on the website. So I, I was wondering if you can open this link and, uh, and read that poem. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can read it. I'm not going to read it from that link. I will read it from this little piece of paper that is my maybe next manuscript. All right, ready? Yes. This beginning may have always meant this end. Coming from a place where we meandered mornings and met quail, scrub jay, mockingbird, I knew coyote like everyone else. I knew cactus, knew tumbleweed, lichen on the rocks and pill bugs beneath, rattlers sometimes, the soft smell of sage and the ferment of cactus pear. Coming from this place, a place where grass might grow greener on the hillside in winter than in any yard, where the whole rest of the year, Everything I loved, chaparral, pea, bottle brush tree, yacaranda, mariposa, pinion, and desert oak, the kumquat in the back garden and wisteria vining the porch, the dry grass whispering long after the last rains, raccoons in and out of the hills, trash hurled by the hottest wind, the dry grass tall now and golden, lawn chairs, eucalyptus, everything in a place we knew, everything we knew little and large and mine and ours, except horror, all of it, everything could flame up that quickly, could flare and be gone. Thank you. Yeah, we're reading this at a time, of course, where 
California is uh, experiencing terrifying fires. And um, I'm wondering what it does when you know the names for things, if that increases then the hurt of losing that. Absolutely. I guess, grammatically speaking, I should say it decreases the ability to ignore it. Um, so I have California fire map apps on my phone so that I can see what's burning and where, for one thing, so I can stay in touch with the people who I know in these spaces, but also just because for me, it's not that California is on fire. It is Hillsburg is in trouble or Lake Berryessa or like, right. It's really a specific places. And um, yeah, like I care about these, they matter. It's not, um, they're not spaces that are just over there in some kind of vast wilderness that nobody has to care about and worry about. I've never been to Bears Ears Monument, but I care about the American desert. And I understand that what to people who come from really lush climates and vegetative zones, what looks to them like nothing, which can be bombed and we can do our nuclear testing and we can frack it and we can dig in it because it's just a no place. And I understand the animals who live there and the kinds of beauty that happens in the desert after a rain and the blooms that show up, right? Like this is a landscape that is valuable to yeah. me. And the more we know about these spaces, the more compassion we can have for it and the more commitment we can have to them and concern we can have for them. And so one of the jobs of being a writer is to not just expand the creative and conversation potential of a culture, but also to expand the compassion potential of a culture because they come to know about people, spaces, ideas that they might not otherwise know about. Right. Help me understand when you're, um, when you teach your child to care about the natural world, about social justice, about, you know, all the things that you care about, you also open them up to hurt, right? Because you open them up to that extra pain of seeing that all the nature that she's learned to love is under threat, that all the people that she loves and comes from are under threat. How do you balance those two? I don't understand why you say anything if it's not going to be truthful and honest. And so if I were to lie to her, if I were to leave her out of that knowledge, she's still going to be hurt. We're all going to deal with the climate catastrophe, whether we acknowledge it or not. <laughs> yeah. So at least we can live in the beauty while we have it, as opposed to not paying attention to it until it's gone. I mean, I just don't understand what other path I would take except for to be honest and also truly love and truly celebrate what we have now.
There's a poem that you open Trophic Cascade with. It's called Natural History. Yes. And yeah, I, I was just wondering if you want to introduce it because I have so many feelings about it. I'm going to blabber all over it if I open my mouth. <laughs> I'd, love, I'd love to hear your feelings uh, sometime. But um, how about I read it and then we can talk about it. Okay. Do you not want to set it up in any way? Because there are mentions of things that maybe make less sense. Yeah, okay, you, I mean, so, you decide. Um, I wrote the poem. Actually, I was living in Colorado by the time I wrote this poem. But I was mm. thinking about the years that I was living in in Virginia and I never I never quite settled <laughs> and so I would just every every chance I could would get myself mm. back to California and the town in Virginia where I landed for about seven years happened to be the same town where my mother was born and where both my mother and aunt were born actually and where my grandfather had his first church and his first professorial job. And it was my, I landed there because it was my first tenure track teaching job. And so there were three generations in my family that had gotten their start in this town, but nobody in my family had lived there since 1952 when things in America were really different for black people. Um, and there's a, an old family friend who, when I was living in Virginia, I came to befriend on my own, but she had been a friend of my family for generations. And so she shows up in this poem. And it, it is true that her Eustro recipe is magic. <laughs> Natural history. The Rufus hummingbird builds her nest of moss and spider webs and lichen. I held one once smaller than my palm, but sturdy. I would have told Mrs. Jeffers from Court Street if in those days of constant flights between California and Virginia, I'd wandered into that Oakland Museum. Any chance I could, I'd leave my rented house in Lynchburg. I hated the feeling of stuckness that old city's humidity implied. You need to stop running away so much. Mrs. Jeffers would say when my visits were over and I leaned down to hug her. Why her words come to me, the woman dead for the better part of this new century, while I think of that nest of web and lichen, I cannot rightly say. She had once known my mother's parents. The whole lot of them, even then, in their twenties, must already have been as old as God. They were black. The kind name for them in those days would have been Negroes. And the daily elections called for between their safety and their sanity must have torn even the strongest of them down. Mr. Jeffers had been a laborer, the sort I regret I don't remember. He sat on their front porch all day near his oxygen tank waving occasionally to passing Buicks and Fords, praising the black walnut that shaded their yard. She would leave the porch sometimes to prepare their meals. I still have her yeast roll recipe, the best I've ever tried. Mostly, though, the same Virginian breeze that encouraged Thomas Jefferson's tomatoes passed warmly through their porch eaves while we listened to the swing chains and no one talked or moved too much at all. 
Little had changed in that house since 1952. I guess it's no surprise they come to mind when I think of that cup of spider webs and moss made softer by the feathers of some long-gone bird. She used to say, I like it, right here, where I am, in my little house, here, with him. I thought her small-minded. In the winter, I didn't visit very often. Their house was closed up and overheated. Everything smelled of chemical mothballs. She had plastic wrappers on the sofas and chairs. Everyone must have once held someone as old and small and precious as this. Thank you. Yeah, that image of um, that nest, you know, made out of spider webs and moss, made softer by the fetters of some long gone bird. That image comes back a few times. Mm Mm-hmm. And it made me think of the ways in which we build a home out of the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. How we have to use what's around. Um, but do you wonder why people stay in this small town in Virginia where if you're black, so much bad stuff happens there to your people that, you know, you just end up wondering why do people stay? Miss Jennings, I think, would say, um, and now with 20 years of experience that I didn't have at that point, I would agree with her wholeheartedly. Where would she go? She would say, where am I supposed to go in this country? Yeah. My husband's here. My house is here. <laughs> my walnut tree's here. Mm-hmm. There's no place I can go that won't be like this. So at least I'll stay in this place that has shelter and beauty for me. Right. And also I like that he sat on the front porch waving occasionally to passing Buicks and Fords. You know, there are people that he knows. Yeah, they had a community, right? Court Street was the church. It was Court Street Baptist Church. They had a community that was vibrant and supportive. That church... When my grandfather was there, mm-hmm. the building in which the public library was housed, by deed, black people could not enter that library and borrow books. Wow. When desegregation really began to take effect in that town, which was mm-hmm. very late, by the 1970s, we're not talking 1950s and 60s, 1970s, when desegregation <laughs> began to really take hold, they actually had to build a new building for the public library because the deed of the public library would not allow um, <sighs> that space. So as a result, my grandfather was a kind of preacher. He was a very bookish man, and he needed mm-hmm. a lot of books to create his sermons. And so the church took up a collection and bought him the library he needed, bought him the books that he needed Mm -hmm. so that he could do the work of supporting them in the way that he could best. So, you know, I mean, yes, that's horrible to live in a town where, you know, you are not allowed to enter the public library. You're not allowed to use um, those public spaces. And yet, at the same time, there was this incredibly supportive community Mm -hmm. that created for him the tools that he needed to be 
his best self. And so Miss Jennings would say, you know, we know the people, they have our backs, they support us. Not everybody does here, but not everybody will in Boston, not everybody would in Denver. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there's just there's no place there's no place in this country where you're not going to run into this. And where's home for you? Um I am a child of the American West. I do, this is my landscape. This is where I feel the most comfortable. Um, as my family has gelled and solidified, I'm most happy. I called my family my little pod before people were talking about <laughs> quarantine pods and things yep. like that. So I'm pretty happy in this unit with just a few really long-term chosen friends connected to it. So I might like to see the ocean again one day. <laughs> But we've got mountains, so I have like one mm-hmm. monumental <laughs> geologic force and so that that's useful, but I don't know that I would be happy living my whole life without having access to really big water. And and what about Callie? Do you feel like she has a strong place identity is she of a place she's my girl so we were <laughs> on the east coast one time um in mm. the green mountains which are so like oppressively green in the <laughs> in the springtime <laughs> in the summer you know i mean it's just like it's like you're in oz or something uh, it's so much and i was thinking this like i was thinking like it's so oppressively green and then from the back seat i hear this little voice say mama I am so tired of all of this green. <laughs> and we flew home. And I don't know if you've ever flown into the Denver airport, but it's in the plains. And so it's just brown unless there's farms. Yeah. And like you can see the irrigation circles around this farm. It's just like miles of just brown and open mm. and really kind of flat. Um, and she looked out the window and took like the deepest, happiest breath of joy. She said, oh, that's better. <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> my kid. Amazing, amazing. That's so beautiful. I'm so glad that she's happy with where she is. Yes, you know? it's true, right? We are not always. There's definitely people who sit and think there must be someplace else I don't fit here. She really, this is her place. Camille Dungy is the author of four poetry collections, Trophic Cascade, for which she won the Colorado Book Award, Smith Blue, Suck on the Marrow, for which she won the American Book Award, and her debut, What to Eat, What to Drink, What to Leave for Poison. She also edited the anthology Black Nature, Four Centuries of African-American Nature Poetry, and recently published her first collection of essays, titled Guidebook to Relative Strangers, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. 
She was awarded fellowships from the Sustainable Arts Foundation, National Endowment for the Arts, and in 2019, the Guggenheim. She's a professor in the English department at Colorado State University and lives in Fort Collins, Colorado with her husband and their 10-year-old daughter, Callie. To find out more about her work, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus. I'm Helena Legrutz, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>